Please stand. This is from Revelations 2 to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There's a second reading from Ephesians um, 1. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... I have not stopped but giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. You may be seated. Well, it is every Sunday morning when I preach, I often find myself um, reflecting on, God, what are you going to do in this space? What are you going to do on Sunday morning? And it's, it's, always, it's always a surprise to me in terms of what, what the Spirit of God is going to do. And, and, and as we have worshipped this morning, as we have prayed this morning, it has been, it has been so encouraging to, to see these threads of, of truth that I think tie in really well to what God has been speaking to me about in this message. And and how these things, even though they're not coordinated by man, the Spirit of God coordinates them. And I find that to be really reassuring that, that, that the Lord is, is here. And, and that there's these, these, these themes or these trends that, that are just at work uh, throughout, this, throughout our, our mornings. So, um, so again, that's, that's been the case today and, and encouraged by what uh, the Spirit of God has already been doing this morning. Well, as you know, we've been working through our series on, on stewardship, and uh, we'll be concluding our series today. And, uh, and so as I was preparing this message, I was reminded of a friend of mine who, in Lethbridge, who a few years ago, he had gotten a job in Calgary. And uh, part of this, this job obviously required him to commute back and forth from Lethbridge to Calgary. The only problem with it, with it though, was that he didn't have a car. And obviously that would be a pretty big obstacle for him. So he, he bought himself this car that was kind of a junky car. It was kind of a beater, but, um, but it got him from point A to point B. It, was allow, it allowed him to be able to, to do the work that he needed to do. And, and, uh, and so over the course of his travels to and from Calgary to Lethbridge and back and forth, at some point his, his check engine indicator light came on. And, and as... And, being mechanically inept like he was. By the way, this friend is not me. Um, 
<laughs> just this one clarification, but, uh, um, but being mechanically inept as he was, he just didn't, he ignored it. And uh, I feel like everyone's thinking, no, it really is you now. Um, but, uh, but he was, he, he just ignored this mechanically inept, he, he, he ignored this indicator light. And, uh, and he continued to drive to and from Calgary and Lethbridge and, uh, and, and over the course of his travels, um, he didn't, what he didn't realize was that his car was burning oil and that it was also, he started to notice that it was leaking oil as well. And, and as time progressed, uh, he continued to ignore it. And even though he had a, uh, one of his best friends was a mechanic, he, refu- he didn't bother asking his friend, what does this light mean? Uh, and so he continued to ignore it until one day he was driving from Calgary on a fall afternoon, driving back to Lethbridge, and suddenly his car let, let out this giant scream, and smoke began to pour out from underneath the hood. His car let out one last gasp, and it coasted to the side of the highway. It was there that he realized that he probably should have checked that indicator light because he had blown his engine. And all that his, his, his car that he had just purchased for this job was now just basically scrap metal. And, and so all the money that he had saved uh, for this job, he now had to purchase a new vehicle for. He also had to quit his job because he no longer was able to, to, to travel back and forth. And so he, because he failed to address something that was staring him right in the face, he could have avoided all of these things. And he failed to address something that his car was telling him was problematic. That, I think, is kind of what is happening in this passage that was just read for us from Revelations 2, where God has sent this letter to the body of Christ, where God is specifically addressing seven different churches in Revelations 2 and 3. And these two chapters are kind of like the indicator light saying, address these issues before they become larger problems. And so this morning, as we conclude our series on stewardship, we spent our first week exploring Genesis 1 and considering the first directive that God gives humanity to to have authority and rule over everything on the earth. Last week, we considered the miracle of the feeding of 5,000 with the loaves and fishes and how that stretches us and stretches our faith and stretches the kingdom. This morning, I'd like to talk about relational stewardship. Because as much as stewarding our time, treasures, and talents are important and necessary and are given to us from God, so are the different relationships that we encounter in our lives, and knowing how to manage those relationships are necessary and important as well. Now, as I said, we started, in, we started this series in Genesis, and I thought it would be appropriate this morning for us to conclude our series in Revelation where we could get this cross-section of Scripture to see how stewardship is, this really, is very relevant throughout God's Word, that we begin to see that this is, a, this is a theme that we see throughout the Bible. The book of Revelation, of course, is a prophetic letter to the church preparing Christians for the arrival of Christ. And within this book, there's significant themes that contrast the spiritual warfare that exists between Satan and God. Throughout chapter 2 and 3, God is presenting a message of warning or affirmation towards these churches, ultimately giving some of these churches an opportunity to turn away from some of the practices that had caused them to dishonor or turn away from God entirely. Or there's also the contrasting message of encouragement to some of these churches, like the Church of Philadelphia, where God says, keep doing what you're doing. You're doing a great job. The church in Ephesus was a little bit of both. God recognized that they were doing some good things, that they were able to persevere when times were difficult, that they were able to 
acknowledge the difference between good teachers versus false ones. However, in the midst of this message, in verse 4, God says, but I have this against you guys, that you've left your first love. Well, in order to understand what the first love is that, that Jesus is addressing here, we have to go back to the book of Ephesians and that passage that, that Dixie read for us from Ephesians 1, verse 15 and 16. I'll read it again for us. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And it's here that we begin to get a glimpse into what the, of the, get a glimpse into the importance of relational stewardship, where we see these two primary relationships emphasized. Our relationship with God rooted in faith in Jesus Christ, and another relationship with people rooted in the foundation of Christ's character. The Ephesian church was a community that loved Jesus and loved people. Paul understood that the Spirit of God was alive in the church of Ephesus, and their love for people reflected that. And so he uses this he uses this letter then to offer teachings and some of the more effective ways that they can steward the Spirit of God, but also steward their relationships with people as well. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at some very specific verses throughout the book of Ephesians to help guide us through what relational stewardship looks like. Now, if you recall, when I started this series, I introduced the idea that all living things were placed under the dominion and authority of humanity. Paul, though, reminds us that although that remains true, God has dominion and authority over us. Ephesians 1.22, Paul writes, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Where the Christian church is called to submit ourselves to the authority of Christ and as, and as a result declare our faith that Jesus is the head of the church. Not just the corporate church, not just Thornhill Baptist Church, the organization, but Thornhill Baptist Church, the individuals. And so as we read through, as we read though in Revelation, the Ephesians had forgotten their first love which gives us an indication that somewhere along the line, they had neglected the truth that Jesus is the head of the church. I remember growing up as a kid and my mom, who grew up on the farm, she would always tell us stories of farm life. And, and I was always, I remember as a young boy being always fascinated when she would tell us about the butchering time, particularly with chickens. Where she would tell us these stories where Whereas when you remove the head from a chicken, that it continues, that the nerves in the chicken continue to allow the chicken to continue to do everything that a chicken would typically do, a lot more clumsily, but it still runs around and flaps its wings and, and does all of these things. If you've, I've, I've never seen it, so I actually YouTubed it. We're not going to show a video. Um, <laughs> but, it would, but it continued to run for minutes afterwards. It, it's, it's really interesting. But I think there's some parallels to the Ephesian church here, where like any living organism, if you remove its head, it will die. But like a chicken, the Ephesian church can still continue to operate just like it always had, except like the chicken, over time, it'll, it'll, over time it will function for a while, but eventually, over time, you may not notice it, but eventually 
you won't be able to compensate for what is missing for survival as the body of Christ. Paul reminds us and present within our lives, giving guidance and wisdom and discernment between what is godly versus what is not. And it's when we embrace the reality that Christ is the head of the body of Christ, both communally and individually, that we begin to see the evidence of that in our lives. So there's three ways that we experience relational stewardship with God in Ephesians. Peace, service, and thankfulness. Peace, service, and thankfulness. Ephesians 2, 14, Paul writes, For he himself is our peace. He himself, meaning Jesus. For Jesus is our peace. Now the Greek word that Paul uses here is the word erene, which can be used multiple ways throughout the New Testament, but here it's meant to communicate the state of our soul where we fear nothing and we're content with everything because of the assurance of our salvation. It's this idea that we no longer need to be afraid or anxious because we choose to submit to the authority and dominion of God over our lives. It's not until we submit ourselves to the headship of Christ that we fully experience the peace that Jesus actually gives us. But it's in that submission that we choose to align ourselves with the priorities of God's kingdom and start a relationship with him. It's in that relationship with Christ where we declare that we are no longer operating our lives according to what we want, but instead we operate our lives according to what he wants. Let me say that again. It's in our relationships with Jesus where we declare that we, are, that we are no longer operating our lives according to what we want, but instead we operate our lives according to what he wants. Paul continues in chapter 3, verse 7, he writes, uh, where, actually, first of all, where we see Paul actually model for us the response to Christ's headship over us, where he writes, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace, given me through the working of his power. Where Paul reminds us that what he is doing for the kingdom was neither self-chosen or self-appointed, but instead it was actually a gift of grace. How remarkable is that? Where we're just, we're at one point in Paul's life where he is persecuting and he's in opposition to God. And then within a matter of days, his life has been so turned around and so transformed by God that now he is declaring the truth and love and grace and mercy of Jesus. Paul had submitted himself to the will of Christ and offered himself to be used however God chose. But that's how the body functions, isn't it? Where the head gives directions to the body and the body responds, almost as if it's involuntary, but the body responds. The head gives direction to the, to the body and we do what it tells us to do. If our bodies don't respond the way that our brains are telling it to, we know that something is wrong. Similarly, when the body of Christ doesn't obey the head, we recognize throughout the Bible that something has gone wrong as well, and we call that disobedience. When God calls us into service, regardless of our past, that is the body of Christ, we have something to contribute to the kingdom. Lastly, in, in chapter 5, verse 17 to 20, Paul concludes stewarding our relationships with God by giving thanks. He says, give thanks. So he writes, Paul writes, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine. That leads to debauchery. 
Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is contrasting here one way of life over another, acknowledging that although one life may seem appealing, one life may seem actually maybe natural, we may prefer that, that life in one, in one way. But it's when our lives are rooted in Christ that we're choosing to reject that way of life and affirm the truth that, that it's through Jesus that we are saved from that way of life and have eternal life in him. It's out of that relationship with Jesus that Paul calls us to gratitude, where Paul reminds us of what we are saved from and saved into. In week one of our series, I invited us to be grateful for all the things that we receive from God. But there is a reality that the most significant thing that we have received is a relationship with him, the gift of grace and salvation. Relational stewardship starts with an acknowledgement that God is the ultimate authority over us and that healthy relational stewardship is rooted in Christ. Where we choose to allow that truth to shape us, influencing how we live and how we interact with the people around us. Where Jesus is our ultimate authority, it shapes us and how we interact with others. So Paul then uses the last half of Ephesians to instruct now the body of Christ to to what appropriate relationships should actually look like when a healthy foundation of Christ is built. So he explores the relationships we we share with the church. He he talks about how you and I should interact with each other. He talks about family relationships. He talks about parental relationships with their kids. He even talks about slave and master relationships. Unfortunately, I won't be able to get into specifics here, but instead I think Paul does offer some very specific principles to us when it comes to relational stewardship with the people around us. So when we read Ephesians chapter 4, We can use it almost like our own personal indicator light, where we can use this as an assessment tool for how we are stewarding the relationships God has placed in our lives. Chapter 4, verse 2, Paul writes, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Humility is this characteristic that Paul often writes about to the churches. and, And part of me kind of wonders if part of the reason why Paul emphasizes humility so frequently is because he could see the detriment it was in his own life, how it affected him personally, how it affected others. But the word that Paul uses here is only used five times in the New Testament. He uses it four times. Peter uses it the other. Culturally, this word of humility, this word humble here that Paul uses is actually a, was actually a derogatory term in the Greek. It meant to imply this groveling servility. It's this idea of lacking dignity and worth. Remember a short while ago, uh, my family was was at Camp Caroline, and and we were uh, in our our room. If those of you that have have never been to Camp Caroline, in some of the rooms they have this, uh, they they all have bunk beds. And the bunk beds are lined up kind of end to end like this. Now, there's, there's, an, there's about 8 to 10 inches of space between the bunk beds, just enough to fit a child through. And, and so as my kids were playing, uh, they were, they were able, one of them was able to, I'm not going to say names, don't ask. Um, but by the way, 
people often ask me, do your kids know when you're going to tell sermon illustrations? And I say, yes, they do. I always ask for their permission. They also get paid royalty fees. So they get, they, they get $2 for every story that I tell about them. So, uh, so they're, they're always wanting me to tell stories about them. Um, but uh, so in this particular case, though, my, one of my kids was, uh, was, was playing and, sh- and, and, they, and they, were able to, um, they were able to wedge themselves between the two bunk beds and slide themselves down. Now, there's just enough width for like, a person, the body, but not enough, they discovered, for the head. <laughs> and, and so as they, as they were, they're basically like kind of like tiptoes on the bottom bunk with their head stuck now in the top bunks, and, and they, but they were stuck and they didn't know what to do. And, and so when we discovered what was going on there and we realized, okay, um, they can't lift themselves out and, and the ceiling was too close to the top of the bunk bed, so I can't really lift them out either. So the, the only natural response then was to actually uh, lay on the two bottom bunks and allow my child to stand on top of my back. And as I st- and they stood on my back, I, I did a push-up and began to elevate them up above so, they could, so that they could actually begin to reach their hands onto the top bunks and lift themselves out. Okay? Here's, here's the point. Paul writes in Galatians 6.1, If someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. When I elevated my child from being stuck, I didn't view it as burdensome or I didn't do it begrudgingly. Instead, it was done out of compassion to help them be set free. We're out of our strength in Christ. We actually, as the body of Christ, lower ourselves so that, we, so that those who may not know him could be elevated, so that they could be elevated and they could be set free. Where we lower ourselves as an expression of compassion, recognizing that in our gentleness, in our humility, that it might actually restore others to Christ. Paul uses this word to show the Ephesians that servility, humility, isn't scandalous. It is not because it takes far more strength and character to choose to put others ahead of ourselves, and it takes far more strength and character to choose to serve others in these ways. Paul continues and says, be patient, bear with one another in love. This word patient is actually one of my favorite Greek words. The word is makrothumia, means long-angered. It doesn't mean someone who gets angry for a long time, but simply it means long-tempered. It means it takes a long time for them to become angry. So if, if we might see someone who, who gets angry easily, we might say that person has a short fuse. This is the idea is that the macrothumia is that they're long, they have a long fuse. It takes a long time for them to, to blow. People who are patient, I find, often reflect Jesus. They seem to be people of kindness and gentleness and grace. People who practice macrothumia, who choose to be long-angered, long-tempered, seem to extend grace as much as they can because they, they know they need it as much as anyone else. Paul continues in verse 3 and says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Paul says, let your relationships be bound with peace. And here, Paul is beginning to revisit that anatomical language of, of the of human body, where the Greek word for bond, be bound with peace, be, have a bond of peace. It's the type of binding that occurs when ligaments are attached to each other. When I was a teenager, 
uh, one of the things that, we would oft- that I would often do with some of my friends is we would go caving. We would we'd go to the mountains and we'd try to find caves and go explore them. And uh, one weekend, there was about a dozen of us, and, and we decided we were going to go caving. And so we found some caves uh, just west of Bragg Creek. And uh, so we hiked up this mountain and started going through this cave, and we found a cool seam. And as we were going through, some of my friends said, you know, we're going to head back. No problem. We'll meet you at the car. And, and, uh, and so as we continued to, to follow the cave, we, uh, we, we kind of lost track of time and thought, oh, we better get, get going. So we, we worked our way back to the entrance of the cave and realized that the friends that, were wait, that had left before us had actually went back down to the car. So we thought, well, we don't want to keep them waiting, so let's jog down the mountain. And so as, as we were jogging down the mountain, it wasn't too long before gravity and the decline of the mountain increased our speed from jogging to like basically a full-out sprint. And, and so as we were running down this mountain, I noticed about 10 feet ahead of me was this, this three-foot gap where a spring was. And there was a guy, my, one of my friends was behind me. I didn't have time to stop, so I figured I can make the jump. And so as I, as I was running, I, I pushed off with my right foot. And as soon as I pushed off with my right foot, I must have stepped on a root or a rock or something because my ankle rolled. And so I was basically pushed off on a rolled ankle. And then when I landed, I must have landed on a root or something on my left foot because I rolled my other ankle when I landed. I'm glad you all think it's funny. (laughs) At this point, I wasn't sure whether I had broken either of my ankles or both of them, but I knew one thing for sure. I was in a lot of pain. Ligaments are the connective tissue that bind two bones, bones or joints together. The ligaments are necessary to keep the body together. So is peace. When they are stretched or detached, the pain is immense. That's the picture that Paul is painting here when it comes to unity. Be, be bound by peace. That as followers of Jesus, healthy relational stewardship should see the body of Christ functioning as one. Not detached from one another, not doing whatever they want but working together, striving towards whatever and wherever the head tells the body to go. Over the last month or two, I've, I've, as, a, as, as a lead pastor, I've been praying, God, what is, where are you leading us? Where are you leading our church? Where, more than anything else, I want this church to be the, uh, to be, I want Christ to be the head of this church. And so as I reflected on that, and God, where are you leading I had various conversations with different people from the church, just, you know, just different conversations, nothing specific to, God, where are you leading us? But every once in a while, someone would say something, and there would be this moment of, hold on to that thought, and just, okay, stick that, that thought in my pocket, and then have another conversation, and someone else would say something, and, oh, there's a little nugget there, let's put that in my pocket. And it's happened now four or five times this past month, where, where I'm beginning to just wonder, God, what are, you, what are you speaking to me about right now? Because I'm beginning to see these, these trends, these, these themes in some of these things that you're wanting me to hold on to. And so God, I don't know what that looks like. And so as part of, part of what I would, part of my, where I'm at right now as the lead pastor is, okay, God, what is, as the head of our church, what are you calling us to? What is, this, what is our response to your directive? Now, as a church, we have said we believe that Jesus is the head of the church. We can agree with that, right? Our vision statement 
says that he has called us to be in a growing community where Jesus is worshipped. Can we agree with that? And that the gospel of a saving grace is proclaimed. Can we agree with that? Where the presence of the Holy Spirit is felt, can we agree with that? And brings a passionate love for God and all who come. Can we agree with that? That, that it's, it's in this, this, this directive that as, as a church we have said, we affirm this and say we can be bound together and have peace over this. We may have disagreements from time to time as a church. But we can agree with this. We can say this is, this is something that as the head of the church, Jesus, we know that you have called us to this. And so God, we, just, we pray open-handedly now that you would do it as you choose. And so that's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite you just to get into groups of five, six. I don't really care how many groups, how many, what size of group you get in. But what I want to invite you to do is to pray. That, you, that we would pray that we would be unified, that we would be obedient, that, that Jesus would be the head of our church, and that we would respond appropriately to what Jesus is calling us to moving forward. So we're gonna, I'm going to have Stephen, I'm not sure where he is, Stephen's going to come up and he's going to play some music in the background, but I want to just invite you just to pray together in groups uh, and, and where we can just unite ourselves together, just praying for the Spirit of God to lead our church. So you can do that now. I wish you could see what I am watching now where the body of Christ is doing what it's supposed to do. Recognizing Christ as the head of the church. Submitting to it collectively. That as a church that we are choosing to steward our relationships with others. That we are choosing to submit our and steward our relationship with Jesus so that he can be glorified in us, through us. I want to leave us with four ways that, that we can do that. We can put, that very, so we can put some, some skin on this. It just spells the word wave. It's nothing spiritual about the word wave. It just sometimes it helps to, to remember, remember the words if you can have another word to connect to it. But the first word wave worship Paul gives a lot of instruction on ways that we can celebrate Jesus and acknowledge who he is and what he has done whether that's through song or prayer reading his word giving when we put Jesus at the head of the church we ensure that we are not and that's where it needs to be affirmation when we are people who encourage others verbally written when we can actually praise others, we actually lift them up and communicate value about them and the good things that they are doing. It also celebrates who they are and how Jesus is at work in their lives. Positive affirmation shapes people and it shapes culture. Vulnerability. It is okay to admit our shortcomings to God. To admit where we need Him. When my child was stuck in the bunk bed, they were vulnerable enough to say, I need help. 
it would be foolish to say, I've got it. It's important and necessary to ask for the people around us to pray for us, to ask for wisdom, and to learn from other people's experiences and mistakes. And lastly, engage. As followers of Jesus, we are called to engage in stewarding everything God has given us. Engage with each other as the body of Christ and engage with what Christ wants to do in us and through us as we submit to his headship over us. We're going to sing one last song as we celebrate and recognize Christ as the head of our church.